0: This is Father Harry Dean, a priest of the Diocese of Austin, and I'm here today with Deacon Ronnie Lastavica, also a deacon of the Diocese of Austin. In the Restorative Justice Ministry, Deacon Ronnie continues to be our Director of Pastoral Care in the Gatesville, Texas area. I have recently stepped out of that ministry of restorative justice, essentially the service of the incarcerated and the corrections officers and multiple units in the city of Gatesville. And in our episodes that will follow, this is the first of four, we're going to talk about the experience of entering into the restorative justice ministry, in case my my own personal entrance into it six years ago, Uh, the life and the work that a volunteer goes through as they enter into that ministry. And then as it has come to pass and as the Holy Spirit of God has moved me on to new uh, things to serve the church, and uh, this is just a look back and an invitation to anyone out there that may be considering volunteering in any form of restorative justice ministry— whether that be in the prisons, whether that be outside the prisons to help people once they get out, to help victims of crime, to help families of victims or families of the incarcerated. And we're hoping that by going through the life of someone who served for six years might be helpful to others who might have an interest in serving in this ministry.
1: Father, here I just want to join um, our bishop, Bishop Joe Vasquez, and extending a very heartfelt thank you. For six years of your priestly life uh, of of ministering to those who are incarcerated, Um, I can't say enough about the um, work that you've done. And I look forward to these episodes and unveiling uh, the good work and, uh, and reflections according to that. So, again, thank you. Thank you so much for your, your, thank you. your service. Thank and you. Thanks be to God. And we think uh, one of the first things I'd want to bring to you is what made you say yes to the idea of serving in restorative justice ministry?
0: Well, there was this deacon, Ronnie Lastavica, and he just wouldn't leave me alone. Suddenly, I realized that must be the voice of God, and I best obey. Well, that's that's part of it. Um, what really came to pass in, in working with you and hearing you over time ask me questions about different things while I was in other ministry um, was the idea that with you there, we had a presence of our church in the person of a human being, interacting with people that are all gathered together. In a place where, if it wants to, evil can really have some sway Um, from the lives that people have lived prior to going to prison, from the lives that they are confronted with while they're in prison, and whatever it was I considered a movement of God, the Holy Spirit, that just said, you know, we've won. Uh, The victory is won. The resurrection of Jesus Christ is the power above all powers, and yet— manifestations of the presence of evil active in human beings agitating against that truth are all around us, as we all well know, prison being one of those places. And if there was going to be restorative justice, evil needed to have a pushback. Evil needs to to be reminded over and over again, you've lost and you don't get to have these people. And so that was really on my heart. When I first uh, started to think about a yes to this, I had no idea what the subsequent six years would present in terms of evil's pushback um, on that uh, desire to, to say, we stand for God and we stand for the truth of Jesus Christ. But the good news there is you never carry that alone. The grace of God is always with you. You try and stay consistent to who you are in the church, in my case, a priest, a priest, you take care of your own personal business with your own sins and with your own uh, spiritual development, and then you give the fruits of that to the, the people that, that you serve. Um, secondarily, too, I've always my whole life, and I guess it's, it's something that God created me, I've always had a desire to investigate and explore and learn about people who aren't like me. Um, from, from early years. And uh, when my mom had her stroke when I was young, um, you begin to learn about people with disabilities. And not everybody likes to learn things about people that aren't like them. I remember when I was a kid, we'd go to grocery stores or someplace, and little kids would look at my mom in her wheelchair, and they just kind of stare. They wanted to see, well, why don't those legs work? She had a brace on one of her legs. Uh, why is that person in, in a wheelchair? Take that image and place it into prison. You know, a different form of wheelchair, a different form of disability. Why do people go to prison? And um, so that intrigued me. Um, I did a lot of investigation of other cultures. When we were in the Cold War, I got super interested in the people of Russia, not the government of Russia because it was a Soviet Union, but just the people. I traveled over there. I wanted to be among people that I didn't understand who I was being told my whole life I should fear. And um, not want to understand and want to try and, you know, minimalize because they were the enemy. And I think that can be a transfer into the restorative justice ministry too. A lot of people have the sense of the incarcerated as an enemy, as someone who's right where they need to be and that's where they need to stay. But when you hold that position – and it's understandable for crimes committed, sure – But you lose sight of the humanity that's there. And if you lose sight of that humanity, you're losing sight of the divinity that's also present in the incarnation of Jesus Christ.
1: With this desire to better understand uh, people unknown to you, were there any people in your life who had a part in your saying yes to restorative justice ministry?
0: I wouldn't have known it at the time, but as I look back, and this is kind of what these episodes are, is something of a look back and, and uh, making sense of, of the whole reality of serving in that ministry, it's certainly there. there's a pattern there of individuals that have been in my life that kind of paved the way, even though I didn't know that was happening at the time. And again, to any of you who are discerning, I would suggest as part of your discernment about restorative justice ministry, whatever aspect of it, um... Think about this for yourselves as well. So it started off with my grandfather, Benjamin Dean. Um, he was a district attorney in a county in North Texas, and he was that in that position for 20, 30 years. Growing up, you learn about that as a kid, that this is what your grandfather does. You don't exactly know what it is. But then the stories start coming out. You know, My dad would tell me stories about when he was growing up with his father as district attorney, and one always stuck with me. And this is why I say he's, he's part of those individuals that formed my discernment. There was a story that my dad used to tell that when he was a kid, he fished all the time. And my grandfather liked to fish as well. And there were people, they were called bad people, that my grandfather had processed through the, the judicial system as the district attorney. But by the way that he handled his business as a district attorney, he befriended numbers of people that had committed crimes because he treated them fairly he treated them justly um he tried to work the law the way the law was there to work as he understood it and what happened over time was some of them actually began to reach out to him to let him know how they were doing what their lives were like and there was a particular place in the county in question Where some would go because they just didn't feel like they would be welcomed back into society, almost like a hole in the wall gang type of place, not because they were hiding out from the law. They were hiding out from their past and from the lack of reception that upright and polite society people just did not offer them in those days. And so they would encamp and they would welcome their own. And it just so happens when you do that, usually you have to find places to sustain yourself. So they'd be around water sources. And where there's water, there's fish. And where there's fish, there's my dad and my grandfather. And so they would tell him the best places to go fishing. And he would take my dad out as a little kid and be with these guys that were all of them convicted felons. But it was like family. You know, they were part of extended family. That kind of settles with you. It gives you a different perspective of what a person convicted of a crime can actually be in your wheelhouse in terms of how you look at them. You might even want to associate with them that there's positives there. They're fishermen like me. You know, all that kind of stuff as well. Um Father Mark Mason is another individual in that that group of people. Father Mark is still an active priest of the Archdiocese of Oklahoma City, and I had started out in seminary as a seminarian for Oklahoma City before I transferred to the Diocese of Austin, and I was with Father Mark for a summer as pastoral assignment, and he had the Mabel Bassett Women's Unit. It was, I think it was a uh, minimum security unit at the time. I'm not sure what its status is today. It was in the Oklahoma City area, so was his parish. And um, it was the first time I'd uh, gone into prison after my life as a priest, uh, as a uh, television news uh, uh, photographer. So this is still in the seminary years. And so just that uh, example of Father Mark uh, first time to see a clergyman interact with incarcerated people for me. And I'm observing it, taking it in. We had lots of conversations about our visits there after the fact. That was the first guy that ever introduced to me the idea that in prisons, health care is a very sensitive issue. And that at that particular prison at that time, there had been some inmate deaths And there was a lot of suspicion among the inmates about lack of health care leading to those deaths and that staff had to work really hard to shoot down um, gossip and side conversations saying, well, the reason that person died was because of this or that or the other. And to try and assure them that they actually are getting at least adequate health care and that these people didn't die because of it. I'd never heard conversations like that before. The thought never even crossed my mind. So it it stirs up stuff within inside of you about bigger picture issues about care of human beings regardless of who they are or where they are. And so he was a part of that as well. And then when I got to the Diocese of Austin, um, now Bishop Mike Sis, who was Father Mike Sis even before he was a monsignor, He was routinely going to the Alfred Hughes unit uh, there in Gatesville, uh, especially on uh, Easter Vigil and celebrating the Easter Vigil. And one year, very first time I'd I'd gone in as a priest, he invited me to come out to help help him hear confessions. And I was there for like four hours. So I'd heard confessions for four hours before, but four hours in a maximum security unit with people who are serving 20 plus years, that was new. And just the exposure to um, what people were delivering as that sacrament was being celebrated, as most of us do, we usually give context in a confession when we're confessing our sins. Not all, but some people do. And um, so learning that context was a real eye-opener, and it stuck with me. Now, when I got to be vicar for priests uh, for the Diocese of Austin, and we got our chapel at our pastoral center, and all the priests there started taking a rotation for daily mass. When you did daily mass there, you did it with Deacon Dutz Dufour, and Deacon Dutz was there every single day. And so there was always the gathering in the miniature sacristy there and talking with Deacon Dutes. And what was Deacon Dutz always talking about? Restorative justice ministry. Because he was active in the Texas Catholic Conference as a lobbyist trying to get changes made for the way officers are trained so that they could be uh, in a, a more restorative justice manner. And I heard tales from him you know, every single day. And you know, I, I thought about it, but I didn't think a whole lot about it. But what you realize over time is this stuff starts to stick with you. And again, for any of our discerners out there, if this kind of thing is in your life over periods of time – what I can tell you from this experience is that is definitely God, the Holy Spirit, saying to you, I'm adding up numbers of things into your life to bring into a bigger picture and a stronger emphasis for me, your God, that you might have the gifts that I have given you to go out and, and work in, in these areas. And then, of course, you, Deacon Ronnie, were are the, the final piece in all of that because you are in this closest era of my life. And as I was vicar for priests and you were wading into county jail ministry first and then to state penitentiary uh, ministry, and as friends, we interacted and, and we would talk about what you were experiencing every now and again. You'd call me about one issue or another and from the, the uh, administration perspective and so forth, and, and that got me thinking about it. And then the, just the timing hit, and I knew and all of the above converged. And uh, it was there on my heart. Uh, it was there as a need, and our bishop, God bless him, was was prepared to say yes to allowing a priest to be full time in there. And uh, and so I was ready to to get up and get going.
1: And to that we say thanks be to God. Amen. 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 Tell us about any life experiences that you think contributed to your saying yes to restorative justice ministry.
0: One of the things that, of course, any volunteer is going to um, experience for if they are in uh, a prison setting for any length of time, if they get to that moment where the inmates and the corrections officers, since we serve all the above, begin to divulge their own personal backgrounds, where you start to get unpacked what's happened in the lives of these souls that they now find themselves either working or serving time in a prison – and among the many things that are involved in that are lives of difficulty, of challenge, of tragedy, of um, not really having a good solid foundation for uh, moral decision-making, um, injury of all different kinds that can scramble the fabric of a family and and uh, make it to where people aren't firing on all cylinders as a good mother and a good father, and then you as the child are are Growing underneath that, well, in our family we experienced a, a tragedy with the illness of my mother for me at a very early age, and the loss essentially of motherhood. Active, she was there and she was communicative and she was loving and and uh, she's since deceased now. But you know she was as good a mom as she could be, but when you're 10 years old and older, you're comparing to what other moms do in the lives of your buds and, and and all that kind of thing and could easily see that's not what my mom's doing. So stuff starts to arise from that. You start to feel a little bit deprived, uh, a little bit different from everybody else, maybe even a little bit jealous and, and, and envious and angry. And I heard a lot of the above in the lives of the people that I served. So that told me that among the beautiful things of the sacrifices that happened in my mother's life and consequently my dad's and my sister's and my own from her illness was the benefit of living hardship, of living not ideal circumstances because 99.9% of our folks in in restorative justice ministry – have lived not ideal circumstances. And there's an ability to enter into their world and identify with some of the emotions involved, the frustrations involved, the sense of my life hasn't been just, um, why does God hate me, you know, all of those different things. And when people are in prison, they have a lot of time to think about that and dwell on it unless somebody is there to bring them the good news. That from suffering... As with the Lord comes obedience and then all of that string of superlatives in Scripture that flow forth from that up to loving in the, in the name of our God who, who suffered for us. Um, another piece to that too was in my era growing up, You know, I'm in my 60s now, almost my mid-60s, um, the era of television, which was coming online and being very predominant in people's lives, that was kind of the era of uh, television as babysitter – uh, a lot of the programming was crime and punishment programming, uh, cop shows, as they used to be called. Uh, you had um, the, the uh, trial shows with, I'm trying to, uh, the guy they called Ironside, so uh, Perry, Mason. Perry Mason, exactly. Uh, thank you, Dennis, and uh, many others like that. So you're, you're getting an impression at a young age about the reality of crime and punishment about people who commit crimes and people who prosecute crimes, roll that in with what I had as a personal experience from my family background as well, and that was making a pretty big um, imprint on me. Follow that up with when I graduated college with the uh, broadcast journalism degree and went into the active lifestyle of covering crime, of being at at crime scenes, of seeing uh, people moments after they had been killed. Um, of seeing people moments uh, being taken into custody moments after they killed somebody. Um, and then going to high profile trials at the county courthouse and doing the the um, people may not know this, but that video that you see of of the inmates being escorted from the courtroom to the jail elevator and you're seeing his face looking at you the whole time. that's because some poor gal or guy with a camera on their shoulder is going backwards down the hall. Uh, getting that that image for you and that can be kind of dicey when, when you've got a gaggle of people around you. So exposure to all of that and so now there's a setting there that says I have a personal experience of the world of crime and punishment at a level. And again, that, that gave a setting when I went into another level, which is the incarceration level in my case and I hope to have it be the post-incarceration level later on um, – to, to be able to to draw on personal experience and lend that as specifically as priest.
1: You mentioned the impact of your your childhood and religious upbringing. What about faith development after childhood? Did it contribute to your yes?
0: No question. Um, the faith development that was there, I mean, I, I you know, everybody knows my story that when I was growing up without mom and, and view and dad working all the time, we were pretty much— um, left to behave on our own or not and um, i entered into some or not when i got to be a teenager uh, wrecked a couple of cars a lot of drinking um, some experimentation with with the 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 lesser uh, narcotics that were out there on the street and and the the crew that i ran with uh, happily never got an arrest record there but in the middle of all that i started to examine big picture things Uh, there's got to be something other than this party life and I began in the collegiate years to get really serious about taking sacred scripture into my hands and entering into it and trying to understand it and praying through the scriptures. That was a, that was really big. Um, and then um, when I got older, the, my conscience formed by that started to have a desire to do outreach work. So while I was in the television news business in Oklahoma City, I signed on with an aging service in a neighboring county where you went and stayed for an hour every Saturday morning with a person that was in isolation in their home. You took them out to eat. You took them to the grocery store. You just sat and listened to their stories. Um, Just something, ministry of presence, which ended up being huge for uh, volunteer work in the Texas Department of Criminal Justice because that's the heart of our ministry is ministry of presence. Um, And then when I, I... got to the point of uh, leaving uh, the the, uh, Methodist communion behind and coming into full communion in the the Catholic faith, Uh, that uh, obviously the Rite of Christian Initiations of Adult was awesome formation for bringing together a lot of the stuff we've already talked about and now linking it to specifically Catholic frameworks for its deployment. Um, and then and then, just in seminary, social justice was a big deal. I went to two different seminaries for my formation, and, and at that time, social justice ministry was put in front of us on a frequent basis. The theology behind it, the best practices, what people are doing out in parishes and dioceses as you prepare to go out and be a priest, uh, that was out there as well.
1: For any of our listeners who may be beginning to hear the call to look at restorative justice, ministry but may have some reservations did you have any reservations and how did you overcome those reservations well i had that first exposure that
0: i mentioned earlier at mabel bassett prison in oklahoma city and um, the exposure that that i talked about also came with it some you know negatives um like gosh that's that's a strange place where people go to to serve time Um, that was unnerving uh, that's a setting I've never been exposed to before. The smells, the sounds, the structure of the the hallways and the cells and all those things. Um, those were definitely initial things. And when I mentioned going to uh, the Hughes unit with uh, now Bishop Sis to hear those confessions, I'll never forget going up on that first building in the parking lot that you enter. It's got this big, giant like alcove look to it. But that's probably, what would you say, that 30 feet high? 30 feet, yes. Yeah. And and so it's imposing. And I think it's probably meant to be imposing as you first enter that unit. And then you go inside and now you're getting padded down and now you're getting your stuff run through an x-ray machine because it's a maximum security place. And that was a little intimidating. And, and I didn't go back for a real. I never asked to go back. I never touched base with Bishop Sist to say, hey, that was really great. Let me, let me do that again. So I know it definitely had something of a, a, a halting impact on, on, my, on my impression of those things. I think also for any of us who are looking at this, there's going to be a, a just standard fear of the unknown. Um, there's, there's enough programming on television out there now that, that purports to show you what life on the inside of prison is about, doesn't do a very good job because it only features certain people and prisons are big. You know, at, at Alfred Hughes, you're, you're 2,500 plus. That's a big community with a lot of different personalities and dynamic. If you meet two of them, you're not going to get the big picture. And that's all television shows you is one or two of them. They don't they don't give you enough to, to really know. So there's some fear of the unknown that's driven by incomplete information, uh, just by our natural instinct to say, gee, people that have committed horrible crimes might not be safe to be around. Um, and so that fear can be there. And you say to yourself, at least I did as priest, I have presented myself to, to my bishop to say that I wish to serve God and Jesus Christ despite or it, no matter what the circumstances are. And when I say yes to an assignment, I say yes to it and I enter in no matter what hesitations I might have. And so my, my advice is trust your gut as you're praying and it keeps coming back to you. I can do this. God has given me gifts for this. I'm a little wanky about it, but I can get over the wankiness because I know that, that God is bigger than that. And I am part of God now in Jesus Christ. Go with it. Go on and take the steps. That doesn't mean that you're going to not have uh, little moments or big moments of, of uh, things that you have to process and get through. But it's worth making the the effort. And the reason it's worth making the effort is because you just say to yourself, I am going to trust in the love of God. That's going to be the foundation. And just know that if it ever gets too difficult for you, step out. You know, Make arrangements for other people to take your place and get a breather. And and you know go and be with people that are are uh, not disposed to to the things that happen in prison and, and allow yourself that grace.
1: And we just celebrated the Pentecost Sunday, and I think about the gifts of the Holy Spirit, and um, especially courage and fortitude. Um, so God supplies. I mean, whenever time we say yes, uh, He uh, again and again supplies exactly more than our expectations, exponentially what we we need in all those situations. Well, now that you are moving on uh, to a new priest assignment, uh, and as you mentioned earlier, you're not a new priest. This is your 26th year, That's 27th correct. year of ordination. So we thank you for your, the gift of your priesthood and the many, many souls that you've served. Uh, do you have any desire to, to keep some contact with restorative justice Ministry? Well, certainly at this point, that's
0: a resounding yes. I think what I have found is that once you spend six years getting to know a group of people, and it's the same for priests, whatever assignment they have, you're invested. Your heart is in the people. You know their personal journeys. Uh, You've learned a lot about them and their family circles. Uh, In this case, you've learned a lot about the people that uh, you never see, like the inmates' families or the victims of crime. And yet you have known incarnationally— person to person, the face of Jesus Christ in another who's serving time, that reality. And so it doesn't shake very, very easily. And since there are restrictions when you're in-house serving as a volunteer in a prison, and that means you can't interact with victims of crime on the outside or families of either crime victims or inmates, now this opens up that door. And so certainly I have in mind, since I'm going to be the uh, chaplain of our retreat center, Cedar Break, in the Diocese of Austin, uh, the potential to dream up some things for post-incarceration and and for for victims of crimes and and for any number of things, Uh, family services. But as you just so beautifully said, uh, chief among all of that is just to let the Spirit lead. Uh, We do our best work when we let God take the lead. And um, that's what I'm attempting to do now. Certainly, I have some ideas on my own. You and I will dialogue. We'll dialogue here with the the good people, Dennis um, Maka here at at Red Sea Radio, who's has disposed himself to continue to work with us, which we're very grateful for. And um, just being able to message and and get the word out about restorative justice ministry to get people to to consider that little itch that they may have to, to enter into this, to know that it's the right thing to do. Uh, to know that that spirit will supply when your weakness steps in, and maybe that the weakness is maybe your biggest asset uh, when you enter into this uh, into this uh, journey. so, uh, so absolutely. I look forward to to more years being able to contribute as best I can.
1: Well, Father, you have delivered um, in this episode uh, one of the best insights and uh, I guess, revealings of prison life, as we know it as volunteers. And this could only have been delivered by by your experience in those units. So thank you again for your six years of of priestly ministry to all the um, I'd say thousands of souls that you've touched and continue to touch. we give
0: the glory to God, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Brother, if you walk with me. Brother, will you walk with me?